we're in the second to last uh, story in the Gospel of John. There's going to be some overlap in the message or the, the text that I read today from last week. We're kind of at the same scene uh, where Peter and some of the disciples, six of them, had gone back to fishing. Uh, they, they're not sure what all's going on. Jesus has appeared to them twice. Uh, they, they don't know quite uh, what to do with their lives because everything has been upended. And uh, they just went back to fishing. And Peter or Jesus meets them uh, for a couple very particular purposes. And today we're going to focus in on Jesus as he restores his relationship with Peter. Let me lead us in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll uh, jump in and introduce that. Father, thank you for your love for us, and I thank you that even when we fail, even when we fall, and our lives reflect our culture more than they reflect your word, you still love us. And not only do you love us, but you care enough about us that, that you pursue us. Lord, you come after us. Help us to learn from Peter's experience today and how Jesus went above and beyond what we could even imagine to reach out to Peter. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to show us through your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me make sure that we're all on the same page with the background of this story. Peter is one of Jesus' three closest friends. He was a part of the core group of the larger discipleship group. There were a lot of people that were following Jesus. At one time, probably 20,000 people when he fed, you know, the 5,000 men plus women and children. He had a lot of listeners. He had probably well over 100 followers. He had 12 that he had chosen that specifically he he delineated his disciples, and within that group of 12, there were three that were his inner core, Peter, James, and John, kind of like a lot of us. A lot of us have family, extended family, but usually there's a couple people that we're close to that we can build friendships with. Peter was one of those closest friends and disciples of Jesus, and yet Peter is the one who, who he made some of the greatest statements about Jesus who, who declared probably before anyone else that you are the son of God. And, you know, we believe that. But Peter also is the one who was called in one of the most heart-wrenching denials of Christ. We read some about it in John chapter 18. And when the scripture tells us that after Jesus had been arrested in the garden, some of the disciples, they scattered, but then a couple of them kind of followed at a distance. One of the disciples, apparently John and Peter, were hanging around the scene during the early morning hours, probably right around dawn, still in the darkness, when Jesus was being put on trial in these kind of a kangaroo courts, so to speak. And Peter was hanging around outside in that. And we see that in John 18. The scripture tells us that Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another, uh, another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So that disciple went into the high priest's courtyard. Peter stood around outside of the, the gate, apparently, uh, of that courtyard until he was allowed to be brought in. And Peter was brought in, and as he was being brought into the courtyard, there's a servant girl there that asked him a question. Aren't you one of his disciples too? And Peter denied it. Scripture says, I am not. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire. And this is a key term that I want you to pay attention to. 
It's only used twice in the Gospel of John. In fact, I believe it's only used twice in the entire New Testament. A particular kind of fire. Now, when you say charcoal fire, we, we tend to think of going and buying Kingsford, a bag of Kingsford charcoal bricks and, and building a charcoal fire like that. This is probably a fire that had been burning long enough, just like uh, my favorite way to cook s'mores around a campfire. You, you don't try to cook them over it. Well, some of you people that are impatient and lazy... You just get the fire going, you stick your marshmallow in there until it catches on fire, right? That is not the way to do it right. The way to do it right is to let the fire burn down until you have the coals that are glowing, bright colors, bright reds and even whites, and there's not a lot of flames coming up, but it's hot enough that there's no smoke because it's burning up, the, the heat is burning up the gases, and so there's not a lot of smoke. That's when it's the best time to cook anything over a charcoal fire, especially to roast marshmallows. And, and, and then what I've learned is to do it right, especially when we're out in the mountains, is I have to roast two marshmallows and put one on each side of the chocolate bar. That way the chocolate melts really good. It's really messy, but it's really good. That's the kind of fire that we're talking about here. It's a fire that had been burned till the coals were burning bright. And, and, and it had burned down, and so you have the, the charcoal fire that Peter is standing around to stay warm John 18 says, because it was cold. They're standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing there with them warming himself. Then the scene switches back to Jesus and the high priest for a moment, and then it comes back to Peter again at the, uh, in the middle of John 18. Now, Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? So this is the second time. And he denied it, and he said, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just chopped off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Now, you remember that Jesus had just told Peter the night before when Peter said, I'll never deny you, I'll never leave you. Jesus has said, yeah, you will. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times. Peter would have never believed that. In fact, both Matthew and Luke tell us that when Peter heard that rooster crow, he remembered Jesus' words, and he turned, and he walked out, and he wept bitterly. Peter was a broken man. All of his great promises, all of his bravado, chopping off the servant's ear, declaration that he would... In fact, he specifically told Jesus, I'll die before I'll deny you. And he turns around, very first opportunity, when he's asked, do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of his disciples? And he denies him. In fact, Matthew and Luke say that the third time he used curse words as he denied Christ, to vehemently deny Jesus. And then the scene moves, and that's where we pick up with today. You, you have to understand the depth of Peter's denial and the depth of Peter's brokenness before you can really get a grasp on what happens next. See, the truth is, every single one of us, at some point, even as believers, have denied God. We've denied him with our language. We've denied him with our actions. 
We've denied him with what we allowed our eyes to watch and we, what we allowed our minds to focus on. Some of us have just outright denied him in disobedience. And I don't mean one-time slip-ups. I bet most every one of us here can identify times or habitual sin or getting caught in Satan's traps to extent where we just flat outright knew that we weren't walking as God would have us walk and we were in denial of Christ. So Peter goes fishing. He and some of the disciples are on the uh, go back to the Sea of Galilee, get back in their boats, and they go back to fishing. I'm going to pick up just before where our text does that you're going to see on the screen. Because what happened, as they were out fishing, they'd fished all night long and were weary and tired. And someone is standing up on the shore, and he calls out to them, and he says, you hadn't caught anything, have you? And they say, no. When Simon, John recognized that it was Jesus, Beginning in about verse 7 of John 21, it says, When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied on his clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, but a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, I believe this is the centerpiece of this story. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time, he asked him, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After this, he told him, follow me. I truly believe that the focal point of this whole scene is not the different Greek words that are used for love or for sheep in the midst of uh, John 21, 15 and through 19, this discussion between Jesus and Peter, which oftentimes I've heard this preached that way. I, I, I believe that the focal point of this text is Jesus orchestrated everything in this scene, all of these events for one particular purpose, And that was to restore 
Peter. To encourage Peter. To lift Peter up. God had designed and desired and planned for Peter. He was going to be the leader of the church. Oftentimes we think of James as the leader of the early church. And James, by Acts chapter 15, is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But before that, from Acts chapter 2 up until about Acts chapter 14, Peter is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Peter is the one who sits in leadership. Peter is the one who is leading the disciples. He is the one who is leading the church. This man who had utterly, completely denied his Lord using curse words before a servant girl at Jesus' greatest time of pain and suffering and need, that same guy becomes the pastor of the church. How does he go from a, from a whimpering, weeping mess to someone greatly used of God to be the first pastor of the church. It happens here. It happens because Jesus saw something in Peter and Jesus valued something in Peter that Peter didn't even realize was inside him anymore. At some point, Peter thought that he was worthy. And then he was broken. And God had to do something in him to restore Peter to a place of usefulness. And that's what we see take place in this text. And all of these details, I, I told you, watch for that, that, that word, the charcoal fire. Where was it? Under what circumstances? Where was Peter when he denied Christ? He was standing around a particular kind of fire warming himself that morning because it was cold. Jesus in his preparation and planning, prepared a charcoal fire by which Peter would be able to sit around and confess his love for Christ three times. The same number of times that he had denied Christ there at the gate of Annas, the high priest. I don't believe that's an accident. It's the only place that word's used in the Gospel of John, those two times. Jesus planned it. And I can assure you that Peter, at some point, figured it out. He recognized, probably on the third time that John asked, or that Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? Peter's getting frustrated. He's getting, Of course, you know I love you. But Jesus orchestrated all of those events. Why? Because he loved Peter. And he knew that, that he could restore Peter for his purposes, to be able to use him for his glory. But I want you to hear something today. The God who met Peter at that low point in his life when he was ready to give up and go back fishing, that same God loves you and values you and cares about you and wants to use you for his kingdom purposes just like he did Peter. And you may feel unworthy. You may feel broken because of choices that you've made in life, because of directions that you've headed in life. You may feel like you're unusable for the kingdom of God. There is no one that is outside God's ability to use them for his kingdom purposes. Moses was a murderer who married the daughter of a Baal priest. 
who scripture indicates he, he kind of fell into that, that, that religion until God put a call in his life. And David was not only an adulterer, but he was a murderer who once he repented, God greatly used him. You can go all through scripture and you, I, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who was without some kind of mess in their life that God cleaned up before he used them. God desires to use every single one of us to raise us up out of our mess so that he can use us for his glory. Walk through the text with me real quickly. The first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus went ahead of the disciples in Galilee. Jesus had this planned out. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, it says that Jesus told the disciples at one point, I'll go before you into Galilee. So Jesus Plan this out, and he got there before the disciples did. When the disciples, when Jesus, uh, Peter says at the beginning of this, this text, when he says, hey, I'm just going to go fishing, and he takes off to go back to Galilee to go fishing, he didn't know that Jesus was already there. At least Jesus was already headed there. Jesus gets there. They fish all night long, and by the time the sun starts to come up in the morning, Jesus has already been there. He's already gathered the wood. He's already started the fire. He's already let the fire burn down until it was a beautiful fire with charcoal, uh, with coals glowing perfectly. Jesus had already caught fish, cleaned fish, and put fish on the fire and baked bread for them. Jesus had done everything necessary to go ahead of them so that he could meet them where they were. Do you hear that? You can't go far enough away from God that he can't get there before you. He'll meet you where you are. He'll meet you in your denial. He'll meet you when you flee. Jonah figured that out, didn't he? It, it, what, God didn't send the fish as a punishment for Jonah. God sent the fish as a rescue for Jonah. When Jonah gets thrown overboard... God sends a fish to deliver him. He spends three days in the body of the, of the great fish, the same number of days Jesus spent in the tomb. Of course, there's typology there. He was delivered so that he could go on about the business that God had called him to complete. God will meet you even in your flight, even when you've given up and gone back fishing. God will get there before you, and he'll prepare a way, and he'll provide everything that you need to get back on track. He eventually, of course, the, the, the disciples fished all night. They didn't catch any fish until Jesus, you know, threw him that curveball that he had, uh, the, the way that he had initially called Peter, said, hey, put your, put your net on the other side of the boat. They do, and all of a sudden, they, they catch this incredible group of fish, 153 fish. John tells us exactly how many, all big fish, no little ones. They caught 153 large fish. They knew then that it had to be Jesus. They were so excited. Peter dives in and he starts swimming to shore. But I want you to see that even though he allowed them to catch some fish, and we'll touch on this in a little bit, he had already caught his own fish and cooked enough fish to feed all of them breakfast. Jesus got there before him and he already had a way prepared. If you have failed Christ, if you have fallen, be assured that if you'll turn back toward him, he already has prepared a way for your deliverance. Jesus not only had, had gone ahead, he had prepared the fire and the fish. And, and, and as he had that, the scene set, 
this charcoal fire that was, I believe, specifically there so that Peter would remember, Jesus invites them to come and sit down with him. But wait a minute. They were deniers. Peter, in particular, was a public denier. All of these guys had decided just to go back fishing. Why would he invite them again? Hadn't he invested enough time? Hadn't he shown them enough love? Hadn't they seen enough? That now that, that, that they've failed to this extent, here he died on a cross, rose again, and even after the resurrection, they still went back fishing. Hadn't Jesus done enough already? And yet, he continues to pursue them and he invites them to sit down at his table. He brings them in. He, he calls them to come sit down right here in my presence. The presence of the risen Lord. Wouldn't you love to have that opportunity to sit around a campfire in the presence of the risen Christ? And Jesus allows those disciples who had all fled at some point to come sit down in his presence. And as is always the case, he provided enough for them. He had caught enough fish and had enough bread already to feed them everything they needed. Jesus and his presence and what he provides is always enough to set us back on track. We don't need to go anywhere else. He's enough. Jesus also, and this is curious. This is a little curious side note a little bit. Jesus asked his disciples then to bring some of their fish. Well, wait a minute. Didn't he already have enough fish there? Didn't he already clean the fish, cook the fish, prepare the fish? Why would he tell them to go get some of their fish and bring them? There's a curious truth here about ministry. The truth is God doesn't need us and our fish. He doesn't need our effort. He doesn't need uh, our gifts. He doesn't need us. But in his great love for us, he allows us to be a part of what he's doing. He owns it all. He owns everything. Does he need me to give him money for him to be able to do what he wants to do? No, he could just make more of it. He's the creator of all. He, he is God. He doesn't need me. Why then does he use me? He uses me because he loves me. And he knows that we need to be useful, that we need to, to find value in serving. And so he allows them to go get their fish and to bring them to be a part of the party, even though he already had everything there. What a beautiful picture of God's love. Does, does God need Peter to be the one who's going to be the pastor of the church? God could raise up somebody else. God sent the Holy Spirit down from heaven. He could speak as he wanted to. He desired to use Peter for Peter's benefit, for our benefit. Even though he had enough already, he allowed Peter and the disciples to bring some of their own. God will allow us when we walk with him, he'll allow us to join him in his eternal work for his kingdom. And there's no greater joy, no greater satisfaction in this world than being able to join in with him and see him do things that cannot be explained in human terms. 
We'll stop for just a moment and give you a picture of this. Tuesday nights back in February, we started coming in here and praying specifically. At 6.30, we come and we spend 30 minutes. That's usually all we're here. And we pray for those who don't know Jesus, those who are lost. We write down their names on a card. We will start out sometimes with a little short three or four minute devotional. Then we split up into groups. We pray for those. Once we start, but with the understanding that we can't save anybody. The only hope anyone has of coming to faith in Christ is the Holy Spirit move in a miraculous way and touch their spirits, touch their hearts, and draw them to him. I'm going to tell you one quick story of a, a friend of mine who I've been praying for that I just didn't know for sure. He's a guy that I hunt with, that I've grown to love over the last uh, several years, and uh, I know that he and his wife go to church some. He's not super regular. He's, one of, he's a police officer. He's one of Bobby's friends, so he's been a police officer for 25 years, so he's kind of rough around the edges. And, and so I've been praying that the Lord would, would just let me know, if, if, he is, if he is a born-again believer, that the Lord would give me assurance of that. If he's not, that the Lord would be at work to draw him. So while, while we were, we, we, I've been writing his name down on the cards, I've been praying for him. So this a particular Wednesday, I'd gotten a call from him. He'd had a friend, another police officer, it was a sergeant in, in Austin Police Department that had died of a heart attack that morning. Guy's wife was out of town. He woke up not feeling well. He called EMS, and before EMS got there, he had died away. He'd passed away from a massive heart attack. And, and my friend was really shaken. I mean, he was really shaken by this. He'd already experienced a couple other uh, close friends who had lost loved ones in the, in the last couple weeks, and, and he was shaken by that. And, and I, I, he sent me a text Wednesday afternoon, and I called him on the way home just to talk to him about it. And and he said, man, it just reminds you of how important it is to love your family and to always let them know that you love them and, and to do what's right and, 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 you know, all the typical things that we'll say. And I said, yeah, and to make sure that you're right with the Lord, that you know that you're right with him. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's true. And then uh, we went on. I, I got home, ate a little bit, came back up here. For, uh, that was on a Tuesday night, I'm sorry, because I came back up here to pray. Got back up here. We're going through the prayer time, and I was leading that night, so we come back together, and we're about to close out, and we had prayed for him. While we were about to close, I got a text that came through on my watch from him saying, when you get a moment, please call me. So we closed out in prayer right before 7 o'clock. I went into my office and called him, and without getting well into the discussion, he said, man, I want to talk to you about the last thing you said earlier. I said, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? Well, let me tell you, I could not have orchestrated all of those events. I couldn't have put it together that way. The timing could not have been any more of a picture of God. God planned it. God was at work in this man's life. God allowed me to take part in that by simply praying and being available. I got to share with him. I, I came to hear his testimony, and there's no question whatsoever that my friend is a born-again believer. He has been since he was 13 years old. Being a police officer and seeing some of the things he's seen and facing some of the struggles he's faced, is, is, yes, it's hardened him some, but he knows the Lord, and he knows that if he was to take his last breath on this earth, like his friend did that morning, that he'd wake up in the presence of God. That was my prayer. 
Lord, let me know for sure or give me an opportunity to tell him about you. God allowed me in that one little instant to be a part of what he's already doing. Did he need me? Nope. Did it encourage me? Absolutely. Made my day, made my week to be a part of what God's doing. God, Jesus here, allowed his disciples to be involved in something when he really didn't even need them. But he brought them in because he loved them. And then you have this direct challenge that Jesus gives Peter here to recommit his life, okay? Peter had just denied Christ three times vehemently around a charcoal fire a few days before. Here, sitting around a charcoal fire, Jesus begins, and I, I believe that this is important, how he asked the question the first time. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's been a theological interpretive question for centuries now about what did he mean by more than these? Was he looking at the other six disciples saying, do you love me more than you love them? Maybe, but I doubt it. Was he saying, do you love me more than, you, than, than, than they love me? No, that's more of a way we'd use that language in English and not necessarily the way that he was using it there. I believe... In fact, for me, when you look at it in context and what all is going on here in the story, the, the, the answer to that question is pretty straightforward. Jesus points to the boat and the nets and the Sea of Galilee and all of those fish, the 153 large fish that Peter just caught, and Peter had spent the majority of his life pursuing his career as a fisherman. And Jesus points to all of those and says, Simon, son of John, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than these boats? Do you love me more than the identity that you've had all those years before, before you ever met me? When you were a fisherman, do you love me more than that? Jesus was, was asking Peter to think it through. You've gone back to fishing right now. But I'm asking you, do you love me more than everything else that's around you right here, right now? And Peter had to take a deep breath and say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus didn't have to say, why did you deny me then? He didn't beat him over the head with it. He didn't remind him of his failure. He just simply reinforced it. I want you to feed my lambs. Peter, if you love me more than you love these boats and these fish and this career, you're no longer going to be a fisherman. You're going to be a shepherd. You're going to follow me. You're going to do what I've done. You're going to lead men. He'd already told him the first time that he called him and asked him to give up his nets. He'd already said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Jesus now sets that metaphor aside. He's no longer calling Peter a fisher of men because he needs Peter to get his mind past the fish. And he needs Peter to move his mind toward his new calling. You're going to be a shepherd. We don't have to get into the language very deep here because, see, I don't think that the specific words Jesus used are 
of as much importance as the number of times that Jesus asked Peter the question. Peter had denied Christ three times, and Jesus gave him three opportunities to reaffirm his love. Jesus will provide us reminders of his great love for us, and he'll provide us opportunities to affirm our love for him. No matter how much you've failed or how far you've fallen, God loves you so much that he's going to continue to pursue you and reach out to you and try to bring you back. And he's going to remind you of how much he loves you, and he's going to give you opportunities to put your love for him on display. Sometimes it'll be sacrificing a career. Sometimes it'll be a, a, a transition in your life. Sometimes you're going to have to leave the way you've always done things and do things differently. Sometimes it's setting aside sin that you've been caught up in that you have to lay aside so that you can pursue Christ. But he will give you opportunities. He will put a call on your life and give you opportunities to affirm your love for him. It almost always requires some type of dramatic adjustment in your life. When you have denied Christ and walked away from him and disobeyed him, when he moves to bring you back to him, he's going to make an adjustment. He's going to make a change. But he's going to give you opportunity to affirm your love for him. See, oftentimes when God calls us to do something drastically different, we almost feel like it's punishment. He's making me. What he's doing is he's giving you an opportunity to affirm, yes, Lord, I love you, and I'm willing to put this behind and move forward because I love you so much. Because once you do that, it does something in you. Once you make that commitment and that change, it for you is a stake driven in the ground that on that day, I changed the way I was going about life. I'm pursuing Christ again. And then finally, Jesus challenged Peter to move beyond his failure and look to his future. He said, Peter, and when you were younger, you're pretty brash. You did things the way you wanted to do them. You'd go where you wanted to go. You were strong. You were in control. But as you grow older now, you're going to stretch out your hands and someone else is going to tell you where to go and what to do. I believe that specifically, this is a picture of Peter fulfilling the promise that he had made to Jesus several days before. He told Jesus, I'll die for you before I'll deny you. And instead he denied. Jesus is affirming Peter here saying, you know what, Peter? I believe you really do love me and you're really going to come through this time. You're going to do what you originally said you were going to do. You're going to die a brutal death because you love me so much. Jesus is, is helping Peter realize that he's a new man, that he's changed, that he's different. And he calls Peter not to look back at the past, but to look forward to the future. You're no longer a fisherman, Peter. You're a shepherd. You're a leader of men. Peter, you've changed. 
And just as, as he helps Peter to look toward the future, Jesus encourages Peter to set aside everything behind him and follow me. Peter, Jesus' last words to Peter in this passage is simply, follow me. And in reality, that's the same call that Jesus has for every single one of us. Quit worrying about your past. If you denied Christ in the past, so what? You know what? What happened yesterday? Once you repent and you profess your love for Christ, what is in the past doesn't matter. What matters is where I am now, and am I going to follow Christ from this point forward? God is calling every single one of us to singularly focus on following him. Follow Christ. It is so easy to get distracted by all of the things in our past and all of the, the, the struggles that we've had when God simply says, affirm your love for me and follow me. I want to summarize before we, we're going to have a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. And if you have never made that decision to put your faith in Christ for eternal life and follow him, I want to plead with you to come talk to me and Nathan about it. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Christ for the first time, to follow him in baptism, to become a, a, a disciple of Christ in the first place. Most of us here, though, have made that decision long ago. And many of us here, though, have denied Christ in one way or another through our lifestyle, through what we, what we allow into our homes, what we allow into our minds. And because of our sin, we feel unusable in the kingdom. I'm here to tell you that there is no one that is beyond the restoration of Christ. If he could restore David who was an adulterer and a murderer, if he could re restore Peter, who had just denied him to become the great pastor of the church at Jerusalem, he can restore you. Whatever it is that you've done, the sin against God or deny Christ, he can restore you. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.